Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org. Okay, so we're recording this intro um, right after speaking with Dr. Eric Lau. Um, Dr. Eric Lau is a professor at the University of Queensland. He previously worked for a number of South African universities and ran an NGO engaged in development work. Uh, Dr. Lau currently serves on the editorial boards of five journals and is a research fellow at the University of South Africa. He has published widely in the fields of political communication, South African media, and South African political discourse. Um, So we spoke with him for about a little over an hour and a half um, about uh, the pretty charged topic of affirmative action. And he... um, I mean, he came at it from a, a really, really different place than you and I came at it. Because um, obviously, like we said in the conversation, you and I are from, you know, we were born in the U.S., we were raised in the U.S., we went to college in the U.S., and the, all the northeastern part of the U.S., so we didn't even travel within it. Um, hmm. And he was born in South Africa, educated in South Africa. He um, was a, an activist in the in the transition from apartheid to democracy, which he talks about. Um, and he now grew up in it, Rhodesia, though, too. So yes, yeah, um, which he he goes on about um, in the episode, um, and he now teaches in. Um, south africa and in queensland so he (laughs) he really uh can play the trump card uh for uh for diverse background and uh and so okay so we thought that it would be a good idea to record an intro to this um just because you know he is coming at the topic of affirmative action from an extremely different background from ours and he really brought up a lot of good counter examples um and and we were talking that, you know, I, I think we should encourage listeners to, because um, obviously, you know, we have a pretty progressive, a pretty liberal audience, because um, we are progressive and liberal in the U.S. context, um, to, I think, I think the way to listen to this conversation is to listen to his examples and his stories as an interesting counterexample on a world and historical level to this Americanized way of viewing everything. Um, and we talked about that where, you know, <laughs> it, it was funny because every, you know, I, multiple times throughout the conversation, I felt, and you said this too, we both felt this like kind of tightening of our, you know, like, you know, just our, our comfortability, our comfort in the, uh, in the conversation. And it's because he uses um, terminology that, that seems really out of place in the U.S. right now, but it's it is specifically because he's not in the U.S. right now. Um, a, I mean, he's w- much older than us, decades older than us, and grew up in a different part of the world. Um, and he's using these examples to illustrate why, you know, the Americanized, the Western, the Anglo-Saxon way of thinking about things is not the whole picture, right? Um, so I think that's I think that would be the way that I would encourage people to listen to this. Um, and uh, he, you know, I didn't know any of the history that he was talking about, so I tried to kind of um, everything that he talked about 
was a really good uh, example and a good story. And I tried to generalize it and and talk about like the concepts of affirmative action and then zoom back in on his um, particular experiences. So I thought it was a super, I thought he was a really, really interesting guest. Um, and I learned a lot from it. So um, do you, sorry, do you have anything to add? I kind of rambled. <laughs> <laughs> I would just say, um, and we touched on this briefly, but if you're an American listening to this, it would be useful to kind of recognize a limited lens in which you might try to apply to different situations. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that, you know, is what we did in the conversation. We um, both admitted that we had a tensing sometimes because of like language that is, you know, would be taboo in the United States. Um, but in the context he was describing in South Africa, um, it isn't. It's just, you know, frank discussion without any kind of tabooness. Mm -hmm. um, so I would I would recommend kind of, you know, listen to, you know, everything he has to say um, with understanding that he is not an American. That's that's mm -hmm. really the best advice. And honestly, this is the dirty. This is the dirtiest part. Rolling up your sleeves and like you know, working with your hands metaphorically of actually diversifying your viewpoints, right? Um, which isn't to say that he's like wrong or anything or that he is, you know, some like a bad guy. I don't think he is at all. Um, but it's just funny that, you know, we have this weird and it's it's funny. I mean, even acknowledging it doesn't allow you to escape it, right? Um, this weird just sort of really, really constricted reflexive way of thinking about things um, in America. So we just thought that we would do this preamble to um, to really encourage people to just keep an open mind and listen to what he's saying um, with historical context in mind and with the idea of he is providing these counterexamples to the way that we always think about things. Yeah. And in his words, try to step in other people's shoes. Yeah. Know, groups that you can be described as like, you know, quote unquote, the good guys, the bad guys mm -hmm. and all the gray guys. Which exactly. Is really all yep. of us. Yep. Let your mind be gray for this one. <laughs> All right. So um, with that introduction, here's the episode. So with us today, we have Dr. Eric Lau. Uh, Eric, thanks for uh, doing this for us. Oh, so you're a, um, a professor at the University of Queensland, but you've um, had a pretty diverse background across Australia and South Africa. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Yep. I started off my career in South Africa at universities there. Well, a whole bunch of stuff there, but also universities there, and then moved to Australia, and now in, in Brisbane. And were you uh, born in South Africa, or was it Australia? Oh, no, no, I was born in South Africa, yeah. But I, okay. I, actually, I actually grew up, um, most of my childhood was spent in what was in those days called Rhodesia, so Zimbabwe. So okay. I grew up in Zimbabwe, and uh, then moved to South Africa when I went to university. I moved back to South Africa when I went to university. And they okay. stayed there for okay. years. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you, uh, so I guess you, you have, we were put together by a mutual friend. Um, and and it, he, he kind of hinted to me that you have a really, really fascinating background. You were involved um, with the transition from apartheid to democracy in South Africa. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I was... Um... <clears throat> I was an I was a very active activist. Um, <laughs> so the the um, the ANC 
was banned inside South Africa, so you, you couldn't be a member of the ANC. And the way they got around that was that they, they set up an organization called the United Democratic Front, the UDF, which was like the internal wing of the ANC. Everybody knew it was the internal wing, but the government couldn't prove it. And anyway, what was the hell? So it, the ANC operated internally as the UDF, and I, I was a UDF activist. Mm. That's fascinating. And, um, and now, like I said, you're a professor at the University of Queensland. Um, and what are your special um, specializations, your areas of study? Uh, look, the, the stuff I teach mostly is political communication. So mm -hmm. I'm looking at the interface between politicians, spin doctors, and journalists, basically. Um, yeah. So how, polit how politicians tell us what they want to tell us. Is it true or is it not true? All that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Which has to be a, uh, a very fascinating thing to be studying in these times. Yeah, well, of course, that also grows out of my time back in South Africa because um, South Africa being a very weird place. I mean, it was a civil war going on, if you can imagine. And um, so I, I did a lot of the media work for the UDF. Uh, and indeed, when the ANC got unbanned, I did work for the ANC as well. But at the same time, um, I was a white guy in, in South Africa, and so I was conscripted into the army. Um, all white guys went into the army, and I was put into the propaganda uh, wing, so I did spin doctoring for both sides at the same time, which was kind of interesting. Gave me a unique perspective on how things work. I can imagine. I can imagine, <laughs> yeah. That's, that, sounds, that sounds very, very fascinating. Um, so, yeah, I guess it, um, Day and, and Clyde Rathbone are the people who put us together. And I had, I had asked them if they knew anyone interesting um, who might want to talk about affirmative action um, from a sort of a diverse background like you have. And yep. they, they put us together. And so I, I'm really interested to talk to you because, you know, Giffen and I are obviously we have this very strange narrow scope through through which we're looking at this because we were both born in the US both went through an undergraduate education in the US and kind of see affirmative action um obviously as two white guys also through that lens and we wanted to um to speak with someone who had a different lens to look through this um so so our goal is to kind of explore the topic with you here um extemporaneously and I guess the the first thing that we might want to go over is is just laying out like a really simple concept of affirmative action, um, because mm -hmm. it's you know obviously um, agreeing on definitions is is the first step in any productive yep. uh, conversation. Yep. Yep. Right. yep. Okay. I mean, I suppose. Okay. Let me add in there. So I, let me let sure. me um, uh, put my hand up for where I'm standing on this thing. Um, mm. th that was actually the, that was the, one of the key reasons that I disengaged from the ANC. So I was, um, I was, as I say, I was an ANC activist. Um, I left the ANC in, I was pretty unhappy with them when I left, obviously. And I left the country. I moved to Australia. I was so horrified. So I, I kind of was one of those people who moved from left to right. Okay. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and it had a lot to do with affirmative action. Um, it really did. Um, when I, because I was inside the ANC, I was, they, was, they, were, they, had, they had two different messages. The one message was the one they were broadcasting to the world, particular to Americans. And they mm. were selling themselves to Americans as, um, you know, we're liberals. We're like, you. we want a Western liberal democracy. 
But inside the ANC, they were aligned to the Communist Party, and they were doing something quite different. So they had two completely different messages, one inside, one outside. Um, and the inside message got tied up with a particular definition of affirmative action. Uh, in other words, they adopted affirmative action as a way... Okay, America wasn't going to allow them to do the communist thing. Okay? Mm -hmm. And they realized that. So they had to do something else. And so they go, well, okay, America's running the world right now. This, this is probably 1990, so it's at the, the heyday when America's taken over the world, basically. <laughs> and the ANC's going... And remember, the ANC's been aligned to the Soviet Union, yeah. okay? And suddenly the Soviet Union collapses. They find themselves having to work with, with, U, with the United States. And in fact, the United States is saying to the ANC, we will help you knock out these other guys. We'll knock out the old white guys and put you into power because we, we prefer that. But on our terms. Mm. And so the ANC looks at this and goes, which part of American policy can we use to implement effectively our socialist agenda without calling it a socialist agenda. And they latched onto affirmative action. That's what they did. And for a number of years, they called it affirmative action. Um, and then they changed it, oddly enough, to corrective action. So South Africa hmm. first called it affirmative action and then corrective action. So in South Africa, affirmative action came to mean something quite out, something different. And when I saw what was going to happen, I actually said that inside. I said, this is an appalling idea, and this is going to lead to corruption. You're going to lead to, you're just going to become a bunch of corrupt communist cadres. You're going to enrich yourself, and everybody else is going to be done in. I want nothing to do with this. And I remember when I had that discussion with, with one of the guys in the ANC, he actually made, he said to me, Eric, we don't understand you. You've been with us for all these years. And now when the payback time comes, it's time for us to get our hands on the goodies. And you're going to be rewarded for all these years of being with us. And now you walk away from us? I don't understand what you're doing. So, yeah, but anyway, that's what happened. I walked away and said, I don't want anything to do with this. Because this, in the long run, is going to destroy the country and is going to produce corruption, which will wreck everything. And I don't want anything to do with that stuff. Hmm. So yeah, affirmative action is important, in fact. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and so I guess that it leads, um, I think, nicely to sort of a more like a general universal definition, which I might put forth as something something along the lines of um, reducing or changing the requirements for acceptance or admission or selection um, for a position based on a quality of identity, not related to the success or qualification for the position. Does that jive with you, generally speaking, as a definition for affirmative action? Yeah, I, I, yeah, that that sounds fair enough. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think I so saw what I'm saying. That the ANC took that, and that can be reshaped in a different uh -huh. context yeah, to mean exactly. something else, and that's kind of what happened. Yeah. Okay, exactly. So, so yeah, I guess it's it's for for us, um, you know, from our perspective, uh, affirmative action is almost exclusively used to speak about, um, you know, college admissions or job mm -hmm. hirings, um, and that's ninety nine percent of of where affirmative action comes up in the U.S. And it, this you're referring to your experiences with it specifically in political job hirings, right? Oh, oh no! Across the board in everything. Okay. Um, so really, what I mean, what was really going on here was 
Okay, I suppose you have to you have to understand what apartheid was. Um, my experience is that actually Americans don't understand apartheid. They think apartheid was like segregation in the South. And an apartheid was not about segregation. In fact, if you look at the original definition of apartheid, created by the guys who invented apartheid, they explicitly said it wasn't segregation. There was a party in South Africa promoting segregation. And the national body said, we don't do segregation because segregation is unsustainable and will cause a revolution. So what they were actually saying, apartheid was um, total partition. Okay, this is this, this I've explained it to students. Segregation, and, and it's because Anglos do this right across the world. Okay, Segregation is when you integrate economically but you don't integrate socially or politically. Mm. So black guys are part of your economy and you use their labor, but you don't let them into your social networks and you don't let them into your political system. That's mm. segregation. Okay. Now, the apartheid guy said, that's the guy in South Africa who promoted segregation was a prime minister, you probably heard of him, called Jan Smuts. He was a segregationist. Mm. The National Party said, no, we don't do that. We want total partition, which is a completely different thing. It's not segregation. It is absolute division politically, socially, and economically. That's a whole different game. So, in fact, what the apartheid model was, so they were sitting with this problem. We got a country called South Africa, which the British have created, a single united country. Mm -hmm. America, after the Second World War, comes in and says, we want decolonization, and we want everybody to get the vote in these new countries. The white guys in South Africa go, my God, if you do that, we're, we're, we're done, dude. I mean, it's <laughs> for us. Like, like we're 25% of the population. We'll be a permanent minority. They don't like us. They'll do us in. Not a chance. You're not going to let this happen. On the other hand, they go, well, we can't stick with segregation. And we can't just exclude black guys because that's not sustainable anymore. So mm -hmm. we have to give black guys the vote. How do we do that but retain power? And the model of apartheid was to say, we will divide South Africa up into 11 separate countries. <laughs> okay? So the Zulus get their country, the Causes get their country, the Petty get their country, the Swazis. Every black, what they said, black nations get their own country. And then when you give an independence to all of those countries, which are called the homelands, black homelands, then what is left of the country will demographically be a white state. It's like mm. smart, it's kind of, they call it internal decolonization. Okay, so at the mm -hmm. end, you're left with a white, a, a state where white guys, the demographic majority, just because you've given everybody else their independence. That was a point eight. Now, I, I discovered most people outside the country don't understand that. They have no idea that that's what a point eight was. I okay. didn't understand that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then, okay. So then, you know, when it comes to the to to the to, to the period of affirmative action and that stuff we're talking about, mm -hmm. what now happens is the ANC have come to power in 1994, okay? So the national body and ANC negotiate a deal. It's the ending apartheid. And the reason the national party ended apartheid is that they couldn't get the model to work. So if you listen to someone like De Klerk, he says, I'm not apologizing for what we did. I don't think it was evil or bad. It just didn't work. We tried it and it failed. And when we went, okay, this model is not working, we have to try something else. So now we're going for the, the Americans want an integration model, we'll have an integration model. Now at that point, 
the ANC's approach to affirmative action is not quite what Americans think, which is like, we're just going to let a minority group in because the black guys are the majority. <laughs> mm. I mean, they're going to run yeah. the state politically, for God's sakes. Okay. So the, the, the black guys are now inheriting the state. They're inheriting the political machine. And they're going to, it's power. Where does power lie? So in America, power lies with the white guys. But in, in post-apartheid South Africa, power actually lies with the black guys. So how can you have affirmative action for a minority who are not a minority? <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> yeah. Now, you see, under, under apartheid, they created all these, these other states. So they created 10 separate black states. The model was that if you were a black guy, if you wanted to be a black politician, go be a politician in one of the black states. If you want to be a bureaucrat, go be a bureaucrat in one of the black states. So it was like you have your jobs over there. But if you look at the numbers inside what is called white South Africa, of course there's no blacks. That's the whole point. Now, of course, the guys who opposed the apartheid the most inside South Africa were ironically English capitalists. Because what apartheid was doing was taking their cheap labor force away from them. Mm. They were literally sending black guys away from white South Africa saying, no, no, this is going to be a white state. We don't want your cheap labor model is not what we're doing anymore. Mm. So the liberals in South Africa were horrified with the apartheid because they saw it as state intervention on a massive scale, which it was, taking away their cheap labor and sending it somewhere else. <laughs> okay. Now, 1994 comes along, and what's happening is the ANC go, we can use this affirmative action thing because the entire state bureaucracy has got white guys inside white South Africa. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the bureaucracy in Pretoria, it all looks white. If you look at the economy in Johannesburg, it looks white. But if you went to one of the homelands, if you go to KwaZulu or Transkei, one of those, hey, it doesn't look white, it looks black. Now, what they wanted to do is to jump, jump into the white system and take everything over. So it was like, in fact, the, the, the model they used was they called it the majority. And the majority have to have own everything. They must, according to the ANC, because we're the black majority, we should dominate the economy. We should dominate society. We should dominate politics. We are the majority. It's our country. Okay? Mm -hmm. and, and, and in fact, after they did this for a while, because they, they brought about the change through affirmative action very quickly. So very quickly, in fact, it was amazing. I couldn't believe how quick they did this. It was a matter of, oh, five years, four or five years, and it was just like flicking a switch. And they just expelled all the white guys. There were no white bureaucrats left. They knocked all the white guys out of the army, out of the police, out of all their jobs, and just put black guys in. And then they moved on to the, on to the private sector. They brought in laws saying private businesses have to bring black guys in. Even your shareholding. You have to have a majority black shareholding. You've got, I mean, that's it. That's the law. If you don't, we shut you down. So they do all this kind of stuff. And um, <clears throat> when after a while, because black guys have become a new elite, a visible new elite, White guys at that point who now can't get jobs anymore because of affirmative action say, um, because the, the language used by, by, by the ANC was the disadvantaged. They didn't want to use racial terms. So they didn't say this is a black on white thing. They said mm. the advantaged and, and, and the disadvantaged, which meant mm -hmm. whites were always advantaged. So now we're going to change that. And blacks are disadvantaged, so we're going to help the disadvantaged. Mm. Now, at a certain point, black guys were not only running the political system, but they were in the majority in all jobs, everywhere. Mm -hmm. Now, at that point, white guys, you know, I can't get jobs, say, 
hey, but we're at a disadvantage now. You guys are not disadvantaged. You guys are advantaged, for God's sake. They actually, in the law, in South African law, they started using the words the previously disadvantaged and the previously advantaged. So they could continue to do affirmative action. So now whites are the previously advantaged and blacks are the previously disadvantaged who are still allowed to get special deals. It's as bizarre as that. And because what they were doing is just putting all these black guys into the machine in Pretoria, Johannesburg, Cape Town, etc. Mm -hmm. So if I understand that correctly, so, so after 1994, <laughs> when the, the populations um, of whites and blacks were allowed to mix um, mm -hmm. after apartheid, there, there was this imposition from the outside um, that sort of used like the external... Um, way that things have tended to go in the Anglo-Saxon world where yeah. whites are the advantage and blacks are the disadvantage. Yeah. And they used that sort of qualification to change the system that was the reverse of the system they came it, from. Exactly. So in other words, what, I, I mean, look, in, in many cases, America was central to this game. Absolutely mm. central. Um, so uh, America intervened very strongly in the negotiations to get the outcome they wanted. And the outcome that Americans wanted was... One person, one vote in a unified system with majoritarian democracy. The American, and in fact, a two-party system is what they wanted. Uh, so they wanted South Africa to look like little America. What they couldn't understand is that it wasn't going to work there like that. <clears throat> because they weren't dealing with the fact that the demographics were different, that you had these different, um, I mean, you know, Zulus are Zulus. <laughs> and, and they are just ethnically different. Even the white community is divided. So... English-speaking South Africans and Afrikaans-speaking South Africans never particularly loved each other very much. Um, yeah. so there's all these ethnic differences which that unified majoritarian system just doesn't account for in any way. Hmm. Um, so during the actual negotiations, the ANC adopted the American model, the one that you say, which was this mm -hmm. Anglo model. And, and as soon as the ANC adopted the Anglo model and abandoned the communist model, because previously they had the communist model, so they stopped talking communist speak, and now they adopt this liberal speak. So the social democrats speak. So they go from communist to social democrats, okay? So, of course, the democrats in America love that. They go, yeah, we're with you dudes, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Clinton loved, loved Mandela, etc. You can imagine, okay? Mm -hmm. And so this is what happens. But inside the ANC, they're still commies, and they know they're still commies. Mm. Now, the, 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 at, the, at the negotiations... The National Party, that's the old apartheid guys, they shifted from something called apartheid to something called consociationalism, which is a really complex model. And consociationalism is a kind of Swiss canton system where you have like all those, every ethnic group would still have its own government, but they would be confederated into a unified government at the center. And you would have a rotating government where black guys would be president for one year. Then it'd be an, you know, different ethnic groups would be presidents in different years. And America put their foot down. The American ambassador finally said, I'm shutting this down. This is not happening. It's too complex. We want the other yeah. one. Damn. And from that day on, ANC had won. Everybody knew the ANC won from that day on. Interesting. But yeah, they, they were imposing an Anglo model. Um, and if, in, in fact, they imposed a social democrat Anglo model on South Africa. Hmm. And so uh, I'm assuming, but like, uh, please, please clarify that you saw this 
um, as a problem because, you know, we're just, we're kind of taking these, we're, we're just sort of being blind to the fact that different communities around the world are different than us, um, yeah. us being Americans and, and just, you know, blindly following the, the re like trying to rebalance the social hierarchy based on how the social hierarchy happens to be in our country, not yeah. understanding that if you actually wanted to be, a, like a generalist about about affirmative action, you would have to look specifically at the de, you know the delineations between each country, and then yeah. you know maybe you you would have reverse you know affirmative action in specific countries, right? Yeah, look, I mean, in the, in in the, in terms of South Africa, of of course there was a problem. I understand there was a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, my model to these guys was to say, um, because, because the other the other point is there was a uh, what should we say? There's just diff there was a gap between, and it's still it's still a problem in South Africa today. The white community built the system, they built the economy, they built the South African state. So clearly, when they built a state, they built a derivative European type society, as America is. Now, if you look at African culture, and you look at European culture, they don't sit comfortably together. It's just a reality. In fact, they act like acid upon each other. It's quite bizarre to watch this. When you put African and European culture together, they don't mix well because they have fundamentally different understandings of how the world should work, which is because what apartheid always said. Apartheid said, mm -hmm. we're going to separate because this is going to work, dudes. Okay. Now, when you put them together like this, which Americans didn't understand, they think everybody's the same. We're all the same under the skin. Everybody's the same. So if we put everybody together, it's all just going to work. You go, well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe you have to deal with this problem. Hmm. Now, in South Africa, you had a situation where the white guys, even now, still percolate to the top, even with the state using affirmative action, to do everything they can to affirm black guys. White hmm. guys still are richer. They still make it better. They make better businessmen, even with all these other things. So they, it's become a patronage system where white guys generate the wealth and hand it over to black guys. That's what the system has become, effectively. Hmm. Now, that has happened because black guys, it, it, their culture is not the same as the white guys in terms of getting your head around how a European capitalist system works, if that makes any sense. And, mm -hmm. and so it just, just jars. Now, my argument was that if you were going to do, if you're going to bring black guys into the system, I wanted a kind of, um, apprenticeship model. I thought that would work. You had to actually, you, you could have used the control of the state. The ANC now has the power to say every white guy has to have a black guy sitting next to him as, a, as, as an apprentice and teach the guy to do the job. Because black guys actually did not know how to do the job. That's the reality. They just didn't. Now, if now, just, now is this... Yeah. Sorry, I just have a question. Is this uh, in the previously white-dominated parts of South Africa, or is this across all of South Africa? Yeah, no. Th this is in the in the in the previously white parts of South Africa. Okay, so, okay. So, in the, so, so if you like it, under apartheid, in the black parts of South Africa, black guys could do whatever they wanted. That was the mm -hmm. point. You could run the government any way you want. You don't have to adopt a, a European-centric model. Okay. Whereas in white South Africa, it looked like Little America, basically. Okay. Okay. Now, now that you put everything together and black guys pour into the because black guys were literally kept out of the white cities. Okay. Now they all come back. They all come into the white cities. 
Well, they don't come back. They come into the white cities. Mm-hmm. And they take these jobs. But they're moving into a bureaucracy designed by a completely different culture. Mm. And when they come in, they're kind of imposing this African culture into a system that won't allow that. This is not just a South African problem. It's a problem across the entire African continent. I mean, that is why every African state just about is a failed, is almost a failed state. Show me one state in Africa that's functioning. We all know this. We all know every African state is like wobbly. Um, there's a guy called Renwick who was the British ambassador to South Africa at the time. He wrote a book quite recently where he used this wonderful term. He said, the South African state is now incapable. It is an incapable state. It cannot function anymore. Hmm. And if you look at every single African country, that is what has happened. You kind of kicked all the colonial guys out, bring black guys in, but you don't teach them how to run the system. You've kept the same system with a different set of guys who don't understand the system. Hmm. It's not going to work. So my, my model of affirmative action was to apprentice the guys and teach them on the job. So in other words, you have white guys, if you like, working themselves out of a job. But mm-hmm. that's going to take you a year or two, as opposed to just what we had, which was like, one day you're in, one day someone else is there. Didn't work. Yeah, and it, it, I'm just thinking about this intuitively. It seems like it seems like you could really look at this, because obviously um, in the U.S., but, but across the world, race is a very... Um, you know, a charged subject yeah. to talk about. But it, it yeah. seems like you could almost you could almost abstract away from this and just talk about um, you could pretend all of these, you know, all of these different um, populations were just maybe even different groups of Asians. So but if you had the exact same same thing mm-hmm. where they're all Asians, so there's no, um, you yeah. know, there's no obviously there's different, you know, um, ethnicities um, within being Asian. But just to make it simple, it, it's it seems like it's more of a um it's culture you have differences in culture it's exactly cultural difference. yeah it's about culture yeah. it's about culture and language it's rather than race i mean mm-hmm. one of the reasons i think south africa got into such trouble in the world <clears throat> is that again it's the american thing americans have this huge problem about their slavery i mean mm. it just americans are just freaked out about it they don't know what to do about it it's like it's oh huge. my god yeah. what did we do okay and so yeah. americans americans have this huge guilt trip so it's really easy with an American to go, oh, well, you were slave owners, oh, bad guys, which is the southern, southern states thing again. And then Americans yeah. go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, okay. And then it's the race thing. And they use the race card, you're in deep trouble, okay? Now, America imposed that upon South Africa. Mm-hmm. And again, said, well, you're the same as us, bad guys, okay? And I, as a recompense, guys got to change all this stuff. Where, in, in fact, again, if, if I go back to the original apartheid thing, they never spoke in terms of race. Honestly, if you go and look at all the early documents, they spoke hmm. in terms of language and culture. Apartheid begins, it was designed not against black guys, but against English guys. Because these are hmm. Afrikaner nationalists. Mm-hmm. What happened was, after the, the British take over South Africa during the Boer War, and one of the first things they do, this is early, ni- early 20th century, one of the first things the British do is they want to assimilate. Because Anglos do that wherever they go. They make everybody else like them. I mean, America's a melting pot. That's what it means, right? doesn't matter if you start as a German or a Greek or whatever the hell. You come there, you become an Anglo, you become an American. That's the Anglo model. And it goes, it, but segregation, you keep black guys. <laughs> okay. But everybody else gets assimilated. Now, now, in the case of South Africa, 
Anglo guys come in and they say to Afrikaners, you can't use your language anymore. You have to use English. And the guy running the country forbids the use of Afrikaans. He makes them at school learn English. If you're caught speaking Afrikaans to your brother or sister at school, they beat you. That has a huge impact on Afrikaners. That's where Afrikaner nationalism comes from. That's the birth of Afrikaner nationalism. And they go like, buggy, you guys. Who are you to tell me I have to be an Englishman? I don't want to be an Englishman. And so they invent, Afrikaner nationalism is invented by Afrikaners saying, we don't want to be Anglos. Mm. That's what it's all about. It's nothing to do with black guys. Yeah. And so when they take over the state, when Afrikaner nationalists take over the state, the very first law they ever pass was a law forcing Afrikaans' parents to take their children out of Anglo schools, out of white schools, not black schools, none of the blacks. They're saying Afrikaners have to go to white Afrikaans schools because that's where you belong. Get out of those English schools. I mean, that tells you everything, doesn't it? And then the, the yeah, product yeah. model does that for everybody else. They create these separate schools for everybody else. So, you see, it's not about it, it. Americans see it as race because from outside it looks like race. But in South Africa, it's a lot about culture. And so these, these things all got confused, including the affirmative action stuff. Yeah, what, what you said um, about it really it really struck home for me. You said, you know, Americans have this hangover from slavery and we sort of import our own lens of viewing everything um, onto every other situation, which it, you I mean, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly, you know, in the back of my head, I'm sort of, you know, it's impossible to escape my own perspective on everything. And so I'm you know, viewing things and even probably phrasing things much differently than than I would had I grown up in that system. Um, yeah, I mean, there's actually a sort of linguistic, I mean, it happened all the time. So uh, when I used to work for, when I said that, that UDF stuff, right, I was mm -hmm. doing kind of public relations for the UDF. And I, it was interesting. I, people used to come from all over the world. In the 1980s, when we were having our little civil war there, Everybody else in the world said this was the coolest thing they'd ever seen. So we had lots of foreigners come there to come and check out these guys killing each other and burning things down, okay? And as a UDF guy, I was always taking foreign visitors to show them things, to give them not the government perspective, but the ANC perspective. And it was interesting how there were certain groups of people who could never get it. And I found that American journalists, and oddly enough, Australian journalists, could never get it. They just couldn't get it. You could, you could be right in front of them. You'd say, check this out. They didn't understand what they were seeing because they were seeing it through this other way of looking at the world. Whereas I found that Europeans did get it because Europe's a much more complex place. And Europe's, and Europeans understand ethnicity, for example. So Europeans would sort of spend the first day going, what are you talking about? And they go, oh, I got it now. Africans and, and Asians would instantly get it. They go, oh, yeah, I understand what you do. Yeah, I get it. Where Americans and Australians... They were just trapped in this other bubble and couldn't get their heads out of it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes sense. And it it's really interesting that that from your perspective, you're able to like perfectly dissect out this American history that it I I, I mean, I don't think there's ever been a conversation about affirmative action in the US that did not reference slavery. Um mm. it's it's impossible to. So how how much I'm curious how much um, would this sort of history of race relations in a country actually um, make you change your view 
of affirmative action based in that country, or would it at all? Mm, I, mean, I think that each context is, is going to be, if, if it's a different context, mm-hmm. you've got different lang- a different language that you're using to describe this thing. So, yeah, I think it would come out looking different. Um, okay. I mean, okay, one of the things that I do about the slavery thing is, because obviously Australians, Australians and Americans are pretty much the same. I mean, really, Australians are just like little Americans. Mm-hmm. And so when I speak to Australians, I'm, I'm speaking to an American because they've been totally Americanized. And when it comes to the, to the slavery thing, this is, this is, I always say to them, you see, the problem with America's understanding of slavery is that it's a white-black thing. Okay? Mm-hmm. Slavery is not a white-black thing. It so happens that America's was a white-black thing, but it, that's historically, hell, humans have had slavery forever. The Romans built an entire economy on slavery. But more recently, if you look at slavery, I mean, do you know where the word Slav comes from in Europe, for example? From slave. Nope. From slave. Really? Yeah. Because in Europe, the West Europeans and the Northern Europeans always treated what we now call Slavs as their slave place. So you didn't go to Africa. You went to Eastern Europe and got slaves. The Germans always got their slaves from Eastern Europe. The Vikings got their slaves from Eastern Europe. By the way, so did the Ottomans. If you, go to, if you go to Istanbul now, it's, it's, I mean, I went to Istanbul, I stood on the street and watched this and thought, I could be in Russia. Because they imported so many slaves from Ukraine and Russia that it looks like Russia. <laughs> it's bizarre. So the, the Ottomans used Eastern Europe for slaves. Western Europe used them for And that's why they're called slaves. So, I mean, the, if we look at British, how did the British get to build an empire? Well, they started by building a navy. If you look at why the Royal Navy was created in the first place, is that Muslim guys from North Africa, the Moors, were raiding Western Europe, including Britain, to get white slaves. And it was such a problem in Britain that they were depopulating the coastal areas. And it became a problem for the British government. You went, hey, dudes, you've got to protect us. They set up the Royal Navy to keep the Muslim slavers out of Britain. I mean, you see, these, nobody talks about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, slavery in, in, in slavery, your, the slavery Americans got, historically the way it begins is that the people running the biggest slave trade in the world at the time were actually the Omanis, people in Oman. They were running, they had an empire across the Indian Ocean called Zanj. And in fact, they were trading in black slaves. They were taking millions of black slaves out of Africa and taking them to the Middle East. The Portuguese come sailing around Africa to get to spices, and they discover this. They discover this huge slave trade. In fact, the Omanis also have such a huge slave trade, it's worth so much to them. They move their capital city from Oman to Zanzibar, to Africa. They ran their slave trade out of Zanzibar. They moved their capital there. And the Portuguese arrive and discover this and go, hey, this is brilliant. We can make money out of this too. So the Portuguese beat beat the, the, the Omanis, take over their empire, and the Portuguese take over the black slave trade in, in the Indian Ocean. And the Portuguese then run the slave trade. The Portuguese then use the model to set up an island at a place called Sao Tome, which is near Nigeria, as the first slave, as the first island where you have slaves running the, as your workforce to, to produce sugar. And it becomes so successful that the Spanish and the British and everybody else go, hey, that's brilliant, excellent, let's copy that. 
and they copy the Portuguese model and, they, and take it over to the Caribbean, and then it gets to you guys. But throughout that entire period, the slaves would be the slave trade was run by the Portuguese, which they'd taken over from the Arabs. I see. <laughs> Can you see, that's not necessarily, see, Americans don't seem to know that, that other stuff. They think it's all about white guys and black guys. It's not. It's, there's always other guys in this involved in this. <laughs> and so the minute you take race out of it, you go, well, you know, you shouldn't be worried about race. Slavery's got nothing to do with race, which it, it did in your case. But that was just a, it was one of the moments in history. Mm. But not that the other moments in history look quite different. That's fascinating. So would you, okay, so with, with that in mind then, um, I'm just, I'm curious how you would view affirmative action um, in a, so, so let's use the U.S. as an example. Okay, um, yep. Because obviously, like you just explained, race um, doesn't have, it's, it's not as though you couldn't have slavery without a racial divide. You, of course, can, and you can have it with a racial divide, and you can have it without. In yep. the U.S., it happened to have a racial divide. Oh, in South Africa, we had slavery too. We mm -hmm. imported Indonesians. We had Indonesian slaves. So okay. we had a different <laughs> racial divide, yeah. Yeah, there yeah. <laughs> we are. And there's still a yeah. large Indonesian population in South Africa called the Cape Malays who come from that. But yeah, yeah. Okay. okay, so let's look at the American thing. Yeah, okay. So what, what would one do if it wasn't a race, you're saying? Well, yeah, that's, that's what I'm curious about. Would your view of affirmative action... Um, I, I'm curious, would it change? Would you be more for it... Um, if we were specifically sort of looking at only the people um, affected by slavery in the U.S., do you think that we could, if we could, you know, perfectly track lineage and say, um, you know, because obviously not all African Americans were affected by slavery in the U.S. There we um, are. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So would you be in favor of something like affirmative action if we could look back and perfectly trace um, you know, history of families to say these people were affected by slavery <laughs> in a negative sense and these people were not. Um, see, would that your, change your view? Yeah, but your problem there is if you go and look at how many ancestors you've got from 500 years ago, whatever it is, here's mm -hmm. a lot of them. I mean, that's true. Some of them, that's true. Been, some of them will not have been. Because, <laughs> mm. I mean, that's who I am. I mean, I, I have ancestry from just about everywhere. So I'm sure that if I, if I go back in my past, I will find family who were slave owners, and I will find people who were done in by the system, because we all have that. Uh, it's, it's not as neat as this, where it's just good guys. And you see, I suppose that's the that's the problem underpinning the the American model of affirmative action. It assumes good guys and bad guys, mm. and that's a very American thing. Americans want the world to be simple; they want good guys and bad guys. <laughs> And I think the great problem is that that's not what we like. The world isn't good guys and bad guys. Every one of us has good in us, and every one of us is bad in us. Everybody, and whether it's at the level of the individual or at the level of groups. We do good stuff, we do bad stuff. And if you, once you recognize that, you get away from this. The American model, I always call it the cavalry approach. So America wants to have the cavalry coming into rescue. If you look at the model America has developed since the Second World War, it's like we Americans rescue victims. Americans divide the world into villains and victims, mm. guys and bad guys. And we Americans are the cavalry. And because Australians, we're the, we're the same. We're part of that. We, we're part of your team now, and we <laughs> come and rescue the victims with you. So what <laughs> Americans do every time is 
if you're going to have a war, the first thing you do is you go, okay, we have to turn this into a villain victim thing. And we're going to pick the side of the good guys, the victims, and we're going to go knock the shits out of those villains who victimize these <laughs> guys. And then we're the, we're, the, we're the nice guys. That's the model. And affirmative yeah. action does the same thing inside America. It says, we're going to, we're going to help victims. Um, and now, of course, the, the curious thing about that, the part that's fascinating me about this villain victim thing, is the guy who spelt it out best was Lenin. Lenin was the original guy who thought the system up. And he said, look at what Leninism is. Lenin says, um, the workers are the victims. Mm. We're going to rescue them. We're a, we're a cadre of smart guys, okay? And we are going to take over the Russian state, and we're going to beat up on the villains who the bad guys are victimizing. And we're going to transfer wealth to those victims. That, that's the communist model. Well, that's the Leninist mm -hmm. version of it. Yeah. Now, the curious thing is that that Leninist model spilled over into the West and it got changed and modified and made more acceptable by the soft left, which is the Social Democrats. So the Social Democrats actually took a Leninist model and de-radicalized it. But at heart, it's exactly the same system. It's all about villains and victims. And we're the smart guys. So the communists call themselves cadres who do it. Social Democrats don't call themselves cadres. But... Mm -hmm. Well, they still operate like that. They're a small group of clever guys who went to university and worked out. They now have the skills to work out who the victims are and who the villains are. And they're going to work out how to save the world. And they're going <laughs> to the power of the state to save the world by beating up on the villains and transferring new opportunities and wealth to the victims. <laughs> now, that's the model. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. What, what would you say to someone who um, would, would levy the critique against your position that you're being, um, I'm not necessarily saying this myself, but I'm just thinking of, of what someone might say. Um, mm -hmm. they, they, what would you say to the critique that you're being sort of insensitive to the, um, to the exact differences that you talked about between mm. different countries? So in the U.S., we do have this history, and maybe we should, sure. we should enact affirmative action to rectify that history. Oh, look, I'm not going to say America shouldn't do it. I can look okay. from the outside. I can see why America did it. I can see why they got into this thing. Um, I, I think it's. I think again, the system has become corrupted. Okay, so it's like everything else. Things might start as a great idea, but mm. somehow something goes wrong in the process. Uh, and I, I think that's what I'm seeing in America. Um, mm. Okay, one of the things that bothers me about this particular approach of villains and victims is it bothers me about what it does to the psychology of the victims. Yeah. So I'm deeply troubled by the fact that American black guys are taught to think of themselves as victims. That's a shocking thing to do to somebody. I mean, it's, why would you want to be a victim? Hmm. Really? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll actually take this a bit further. And now the example I'm going to use here is not as extreme as the slavery thing in America. Okay, I get that. Okay. But as I told you, I, I grew up in Rhodesia. Yeah. <laughs> now... Rhodesia was run by, by English-speaking South Africans, Anglos. And Anglos didn't like Afrikaners, and Afrikaners don't like Anglos. There's been this, like, like the French-Canadian thing, okay? They don't <laughs> do very much, okay? <laughs> All right. Now, I grew up in Rhodesia, and I have this funny name. Now, my name is an Afrikaner name. But I'm not an Afrikaner. I'm actually, it turns out that I'm actually English. My, my parents were English. I didn't speak Afrikaans. But my name says that I'm an Afrikaner. 
And because my name says I'm an Afrikaner, any English-speaking South African initially goes, oh, you're one of them. You're a bad dude. Hmm. Yeah? Now, when I was at school in Rhodesia, Rhodesians were very Anglo-nationalist. They were British Empire guys, and we're about the British Empire. We're Anglos. We don't like these Afrikaner guys. I had real shit at school, honestly. I was always treated as second class. No question. Just I, That's why it's one of the reasons I became an ANC activist. I understood where black guys were coming from. I understood what it's like to be treated as second class. It's bloody annoying. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I remember actually, once in school, I was, I was studying economics at school, and I was really good at it. I was without doubt the best in the class. And my teacher hated it because I had this funny name. How can an Afrikaner be? <laughs> Just un unacceptable. And I remember her one day saying to the class, which was a, it was a comment about me, when she said to the class, why do you, she's asking the class the question, why do you think it is um, that so many Afrikaners are retarded? Do you think it's because of the years of inbreeding when they wandered across the interior of Africa? And all the class went, oh, snigger, snigger, snigger. Isn't that really funny? And they all looked at me, and I went, yeah, fuck you guys. <laughs> so I understand racism, dude. I really understand it. I know what it's like. I've been there. So you could say I was victimized, which I was. But hey, get over it. I mean, like, okay. In fact, you know what? I just thought less of them. Hmm. I was like, okay, guys, be like that. Yeah, how stupid. I'm not, I'm not even an Afrikaner, but if you want to treat me like that, go for it. Now, with yeah. black guys, that's why I understood the black guys. I understood what's been done to them. And I understood how angry they were. So I get the idea. I get the problem. But I'm saying these kind of interventionist models, which is a kind of what hat fits all model, is not going to work. Because the, it's the one hat fit, fits model that, that, that is the problem. How can you do that? How can you just say everybody's in the same boat? I mean, in South Africa, there are black guys who are basically, I call them black Anglos. Mandela was one of them. He's, a, he's an Englishman in the black skin. There are many people like that. They identify with being Anglos. They are culturally Anglos. They are no longer Africans. Of course we get that idea. Now, are you going to treat that guy the same as the guy who remains an African culturally? You see, affirmative action doesn't deal with that problem, does it? It just mm -hmm. puts them all in the same. All black guys, oh, well, you look different, so you're all in that camp now. Daft idea. I mean, we should actually look at who people actually are rather than just put them into those categories. That's, that's a really fascinating point. Because, yeah, you're right. It does, you know, it, to, to bring it back to a context, a context I know about, if you're applying to a college, for instance, and you indicate that you're um, of African descent, you're immediately lumped into a, a group regardless of, for instance, economic status. Um, yep. so, exactly. so, you know, you could make the case that, like you made um, in a U.S. version, that a very poor um, rural white is in a far worse position educationally Absolutely. than yep. a, a rich, um, you know, northeastern African-American family. Right? Well, I'm not, if, if you ask me, that's exactly what brought Trump to power. I mean, that's why Trump's in power. It was, it was, I mean, if you are one of those, those white guys out there in middle America and life is treating you really badly, and there's an awful lot of poor American white guys who life is treating very badly, and you see, 
those rich black guys. <laughs> I mean, they are rich black guys living in Northeast, in, in New York, who are doing pretty well in life. But mm. affirmative action discriminates in favor of them and against you. Hey, you're going to be really pissed off. And it was, I mean, Trump played to that pissed off vote, didn't he? That's what he did. He did. Yeah. He spoke to those guys and said, you have every right to be pissed off. The system has gone wrong. Why are they discriminating against you when you're having such a bad time? That's what it was about. And mm. Brexit was the same. It was pretty much the same thing. Because when I look at what happened is, I think globally, there was a kind of, from, the ninth, from about 1990 until about, well, in fact, to the Trump period, I reckon, that period I see as a kind of social democrat hegemony right across the world. Social Democrats literally took over the world. And, I mean, even inside the Republican Party, the neocons were actually social democrats <laughs> in a peculiar <laughs> kind of way. So there was a kind of agreement that the social democrat model would, would prevail. And it's that idea of we will not take control of the state and intervene to help victims. But if you're not defined as a victim and you are a victim, you're in deep trouble. Mm. That's the problem. They chose who were the victims and who were not. And it, I think in the case of America, I think maybe they chose badly. Okay? They could have done it a, they could have done a much better job. So if you're going to help black guys who are in trouble, help the guys who are in trouble. Don't help the guys that are black guys who are not in trouble. And what about mm. the white guys who are in trouble? You're going to victimize them just because maybe they're four, four generations ago they would say were slave owners. Well, they're not now. Yeah, no, it's funny that, you know, you, you kind of, you're pointing out the flaw, the flaws in my earlier thinking, um, where even if, you know, I wonder actually, I mean, how much this is, you know, you'll get a, a huge, I think, pushback for even thinking this thought, but you're right. I mean, to question how much your, your family history does actually matter. I mean, if you, if you, uh, have a history of a wealthy Southern slave owner uh, owning family, but two generations ago or three generations ago, you lost all of that wealth. You, I don't think it makes any sense rationally just treating people as individuals that you should be um, punished for a previous family member's wealth in college admissions now. It doesn't seem to make any sense. And the vice versa is true, right? If you're, yep, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, if you're of African descent living in America and you're, you know, five generations back, um, grandfather was a slave and and since then your family has rose um to a position of great power and influence you probably don't need much help in getting into college right exactly, exactly right yeah there there's there's the problem right there um mm. i mean in fact if you look at the southern states in america and my understanding historically is that after the civil war the yankees went in there and really beat up these guys i mean they did terrible things to the southern white guys they impoverished them, literally. They just took everything away from them, disempowered them, took their wealth away. Now, okay, so now what? Do we, so we should we have a should we have a an affirmative action system which says, well, now we should actually um, see the, the Northern Yankees as a bunch of bullies who went and beat up on the white guys in the South, and the white guys in the South should have affirmative action to help them against those nasty capitalists from New York who went and did that to them. I mean, it's the same logic, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> And, but we, nobody says that. But it's the same mm. kind of logic, uh, which is why if you go to the South, you still hear that kind of resentment about Yankees. I mean, it's like it's they, true. Remember, yeah. they remember they do. this. <laughs> and of course, you remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so I take your point as saying, 
oh, sorry, Giffen. One, one second. I just take Eric your point of saying, um, you know, if we if we do focus on these sort of arbitrarily imposed um, classifications of people, we're going to create this cycle of it's just one group almost pitted against another. Right. Um, just back and forth, back and forth. And we need to look at it on a more individual level if we want to be, if we want to have the right scope to look at this. Well, and, and see, the other thing that, that, that bothers me about this is that, like I said, there are some really competent black guys who don't need affirmative action. But if you have affirmative action, you're just lumped in with everybody else. And so actually hmm. it becomes a new form of racism. It's like, oh, yeah, but you're just an affirmative. <laughs> okay. Hmm. And so if you're a competent black guy who could have got there happily on your own, nobody's going to believe that now. They're going to, yeah, you just got there because they helped you a lot. I'm seeing that that's not fair either, is it? No. And yet that isn't that, we all know that that's what people say. And they say that in South Africa. In fact, one of the words that white guys now use about black guys in South Africa, they call them affirmatives. They don't call them blacks anymore. They call them affirmatives. Oh, they're affirmative. The guy is like got there because he's a black guy. Wow. Now you see wow. that's you kind of racism, isn't it? And it's not It is, yeah. Now, a lot of those a lot of those black guys in those positions because the word affirmative also has it does indeed have a kind of racist thing now. It's like, well, you're not up to it, dude. That's why you're screwing everything up. Now that's not you know, so there's a kind of there's that backhanded thing about affirmative. But mm. of course there are a lot of competent black guys there who aren't screwing things up. But they're all lumped in the same category. Mm. And of course, it works the other way around, where black guys treat all white guys as, yeah, you're just racist bastards who did this to my ancestors. And so you owe me. Now, and again, you see, I look at it again. I look at the, 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 I look at the African thing because I'm originally from Africa. Okay. And I'm fascinated by how colonization works in Africa, but also in America. And I think that's the other thing Americans have done. Americans have invented a very strange understanding of colonization and decolonization, which it's, mm -hmm. if you go and look at it historically, it bears no relationship to the story that's now told. Hmm. I mean, America's one is the, is the most, if you look at America and Australia, one of the reasons they're culturally so similar is that these two places are the most successful colonial projects ever in history. I mean, they take whole continents. And colonize them. Okay. But look at the way it's done. It's not quite, it's not as brutal as everybody says. Parts of it are brutal, but not all of it. History is much more complex than what people are saying. And there's this very simple narrative that goes with the affirmative action narrative about um, this nasty white brutal guys who come and beat up guys who are not white. It wasn't like that. So, with slavery, okay, the reason that slavery worked, you know, that Portuguese thing, the Portuguese guys didn't actually go and get the slaves. That's the part Americans don't under, seem to understand. Slaver, you don't have white guys going and grabbing slaves. What happens is it's built upon an African cultural formation. So in Africa, whenever there are wars between tribes, okay, Africans, this is how Africans did it in the past. They have a war, they beat the other guy, the tribe next door. When you've beaten the guy next door, you kill every single male over puberty. Because they're the enemy. You don't want them to come back and be beat you up later. You kill all males over puberty, dead. You take all the women and you integrate them into your tribe. You take them as your wives. 
It's kind of like sexual slavery, isn't it? But there you go. And you take all the children and you bring them up as yours. That's what they did. Now, what then happened with the slavery thing is the, the slavers come. And it was, the, it was the Arabs guys who worked this out. So the Arabs set up the original system. Arabs look at this and they go to these tribes and they say, hey, you know those black guys, the, 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 those black male guys that you're killing? Instead of killing them, sell them to us. We'll take them away. They won't be a problem anymore. And it means you don't have to kill them. And you can make money out of it. It's a bloody marvelous thing. So you can take the women and children, but give the men to us. That's how it starts. And they take them away and sell them into slavery. That's the model of slavery. So that means slavers don't take it. It's built on an African cultural form anyway. Af and then, of course, once that happened, once slavery got set up, it became a business for black guys. Because mm. black guys went, hey, we can make money out of this. This is bloody marvelous. Let's go start a war to get these guys. And then they were having wars to go get slaves to sell them on. But black guys were complicit in this. I mean, that's wow. part of the story too, isn't it? it and is, and by, yeah. by the way, in, in East Africa, in East Africa, this, this might, you, some historian can do some digging on this. I'd love some historian to dig this up. But my understanding of the East African slave trade, which is with the one run by the Zanzibar guys, right, is that the Zanzibar guys, when they ran the slave trade, they were, they were traveling deep into the interior of Africa to trade with tribes to, get this, to move the slaves out. And right along all of these trade routes, because they were like these big highways going into Africa, I mean, trade routes where they were bringing slaves up, all along those areas in Africa, you find there were local collaborators who collaborated with the Arab slavers. They were the middlemen. They were businessmen. Okay? And the interesting thing is, one of the dead giveaways of whether you were a slave collaborator, whether you're one of these business collaborators or not, is are you Muslim? Because they tended to be converted to, to the Muslim religion because they were working with these Arab guys. Hmm. Now, if you go back and look at Obama's history in, 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 in Kenya, his family were Muslims. They tell you something. <laughs> and the place in Africa where his family come from is on one of those slave routes. On one of the slave routes. So some historian used to go some digging there and say, hey, is there a connection here, guys? Because there may be, there is one. I don't know. But you see what I'm saying to you? It's more complex than that. Now, let's imagine, I don't know if it's true, but let's imagine that some distant ancestor of Obama's was a slave trader. Does that mean he's a bad guy? No, it doesn't. It's got nothing to do with him. Mm. That's, a, that's a, I mean, that's a really good point. Yeah, we do. I feel like you're, you're, <laughs> That's funny. You're really clearly pointing out that we do tend to lump in the crimes of people's ancestors with those populations now. And that's, I mean, if anything is a perfect example of why we shouldn't do that, it's the fact that, you know, like you're suggesting, if, what if, just imagine that um, Obama's, you know, ancestors in the past had something to do with this. That would not have anything to do with his reputability. It would have that, absolutely for, nothing to do with it. Yeah. For definition, if you look at what he stands for in the world... He puts, yep. And he stands for exactly the opposite, doesn't he? So what are you yep. going to measure him on what some distant ancestor believed? Of course, that's crazy. It makes no sense, yeah. It makes no yeah. sense. And of course, the other thing about slavery in the, in the American context is virtually, I mean, if you went to Africa now and asked most Africans, would you like to go to America? They'd go, please, please let me <laughs> in. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. I, I saw the figures recently from South Africa, and I think it was like 
60% of South Africans would love to migrate, black South Africans would love to migrate right now. They would do anything to get into America. Now, let's, let's go back and look at the slave trade. Maybe black American, African Americans today should say, thank you for bringing me here. You got me out of this African shit. Thank you. I mean, that's another way of looking at it, isn't it? I mean, right now, Africans would love to, to, to go there. I mean, <laughs> we are, now, I'm not saying slavery is a cool thing. Of I'm course, saying, yeah. We're going to look at that past thing in prison thing. Well, they're in, the, they're in the best place to be right now, aren't they? Yeah, it is. It is asking what the counterfactual is, too. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, it's that's a that's a challenging question, though. Um, <laughs> Giffen, no, just, I'm sorry. It's just, I, it's just throwing problems into the, into the thing. No, it is. I like to, I is, like yeah. to create problems for definitions. OK, it's, it's, like, <laughs> you're very good at it. Giffen, I'm realizing I cut you off uh, a while back. Sorry. Did you yeah. have a question? No, no, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Jordan, it was, it was more of a comment. I was whenever we were talking about um, you know, Southern whites in the United States and like disliking Yankees. Um, mm. That that's just, like an example of a cultural divide in the United States mm. that isn't yeah. on racial lines, which is um, we were commenting on being kind of lacking generally in American yep. perceptions. Um, and I definitely agree. I feel like there's a disinclination towards any kind of grayness in the American yes. mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, see, and I suppose. Uh, maybe by now you realize that I'm a gray kind of guy. <laughs> and that's what I naturally do because I'm always able. I mean, my entire life, I always think myself in the other person's position yeah. um, because I'm a natural boundary guy, partly because, okay, so my own past is my father's Afrikaans, my mother's English, but we, I was brought up speaking English. So I have family that are on the two different teams. I hear them say the bad things about each other. That means I go, okay, I understand this cultural thing. I get these cultural war things. Okay, and then all the other stuff that happened. But I've always been someone who goes, I want to think myself into your shoes. And I, I, I think I can do that. I can think myself into being a black guy and go, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> okay, I know why you're angry. Um, but I can also think myself into the shoes of, the, of a slave owner. I can. I can go, yeah, well, I, this guy came and he was trying to make, he was a businessman and he's making money. I get it. Mm. I know what he's doing. Um, you know, and... There we are. Like that's what human beings are like. So I, yeah. I go gray thing in between and go, well, that's interesting. Let me think of both of these positions and then come up with the gray stuff in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Americans are honestly very, very bad at doing that. Uh, and it's you know what's funny is it's often seen. I mean, it's often seen as actually something immoral to do to try to understand where someone else is coming from if they happen to be to be, you know, in the wrong, um, historically speaking. But mm. like you said, I mean, if we want to understand it, we, sh we really should try to, um, you know, empathize and understand where these things are coming from. Um, because that, I think you're right in pointing out that that's, that's really one of the best ways to understand it, is to put yourself in other people's shoes. Yeah, well, as a, um, earlier on in the interview, I was telling you about... I said, this is what apartheid actually is, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that was a discovery I made after I came to Australia, believe it or not. Because I was, I was on the other team. I was on the ANC team. Mm. As far as I was concerned, these apartheid guys were just bad. They were rotten guys. That's why I fought them. And then when I came to Australia, I kept being asked by Australians, what is this thing? And I'm going, now they have no idea. They are completely mm. confused. And so... I thought, I need to write a book about this. I need to write what actually happened. 
And but then when I wanted to do that, I thought I have to go and do some research here. And mm. one of the things I did is I went back to South Africa and went and did a whole bunch of archival research. And I dug up the documents of the original, let's call them the founding fathers of apartheid. Okay, the guys that invented the system. And I went and read the actual documents. What were they saying they were doing? And I, what I was doing to myself, I was saying, I want to get into their heads. I want to understand what did they think they were doing. So that was my objective. And when I read this stuff, I went, oh, my God, I didn't know this. I had no idea that's what they thought they were doing. And it just changed my whole perspective. I went, oh, okay. That's much mm. more complex now. And it's, it's, it's the same thing as, I mean, I, I can get into Lenin's head. Same thing. I, I want to go, I, I, I read the communist stuff. I read everything. And I go, mm. oh, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm not trying to do it to make you my enemy. I want to, hey, if I was you, why would I be thinking that? I mean, yeah. that's, the, that's, that's a, a much more constructive approach. It is. It is. Hey, Giffen, I'm curious. So uh, I know that you were tentatively sort of, um, we had talked about this before, before um, speaking with Eric, but you were tentatively for um, affirmative action. I'm just curious, has anything Eric said uh, made you question that or change your mind? Or are there sort of points that, um, counterpoints that you want to ask him about? Yeah, good question. Um so first, let's clarify that I'm going to be speaking in the American context sure, here. Sure. Um, I, I lack the knowledge, just frankly, to talking in any other context. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm a, I, I, a tepid um, for um, mm -hmm. affirmative action. I think is how I would describe it. Um, and I, but I also do recognize, and it's been made a little bit more clear in the conversation, kind of the limitations. Um, of at least the current like legislation that is in place in the United States and the implementation of it. Um, in particular, you could have people who are well off, who may have um, overcome in some ways, at least in the quantitative aspects of income and wealth, um, you know, historical bias, um, you know, wealthy black guys in New York City. Um, and you also have people that are being helped um, without the kind of historical context. Like if you imagine someone who immigrated from like Nigeria, well, their ancestors were not American slaves, but because they hit a check mark on their race card, <clears throat> um, they might have preferable and, you know, admission to university. And I recognize that, um, that the, our approach is not nuanced. And I also am starting to recognize that because of like intermarriage becoming more and more common in the United States, we do get the, the, um, of the mixed race issue, which makes it, you know, mm. maybe immediately post um, Civil War, um, there would have it would have been relatively easy to scalpel between the affected and not. But now, yeah. and the more and more as time passes, it becomes harder and harder to draw clear lines and make decisions um, about like, you know, how how can you say, well, you're about twenty five percent affirmative. You know, um, and and you brought up a good point that at the same time, you do have, you know, disaffected groups like in the Rust Belt, um, you know, whites who are you know struggling economically. They they might have experienced in large, larger groups, um, intergenerational, you know, uh, declines in standard of living, you know. And I guess my question for you, Eric, after saying all of that would be I uh, what would your feelings be about? kind of just redistribu redistribution of like wealth 
um, just based on like, you know, income inequalities or, you know, wealth inequalities. Like, are you opposed to, you know, that broadly or is it just like the the odd and inexportable race based approach that you're discomfortable with? Uh, okay, well, I've, I've, I've changed my position on that one. So if I go back to my previous life, so when I was in the ANC, the ANC was, uh, was aligned to the South African Communist Party, and that, that was the policy of the ANC. They were communists. They supported the Soviet Union. And I would have been with that. I, I was a commie, right? I wanted wealth redistribution, no question. Um, I now think it's a shocking idea, right? Um, and the reason it's a shocking idea is that um, I think that if the state intervenes, so if, the sta if, if you get, okay, so the model is I'm going to take control of the state and use power because there's no other way you're going to do this to redistribute wealth to somebody else using, let's say, the taxation system or whatever. I just I have a problem with that. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I think that too is theft. Okay. Now, I guess that puts me into the right-wing camp now, okay? I'm going, <laughs> but that is theft. Because if somebody has got it together to kind of create... Okay, making wealth is, is hard. You have to look at where does wealth come from. Now, let, let, let's take that the, the one, the, the model that the capitalists go and they go, it's an entrepreneur. Well, it's not a bad concept. Let's take that concept. An entrepreneur, you can identify people who are entrepreneurial. They make wealth. How do you make wealth? You organize stuff. I'll, I'll go back to the, the, the idea of whether it's America, whether it's South America, whether it's the Spanish going into South America, or whether it's the British going into Africa. Now, we told they're bad guys because they're colonists and imperialists and they wouldn't stole the wealth. No, they didn't. No, sorry. I'll tell you what happened. Let's just look at the gold mines in South Africa, right? There were lots of black guys living in South Africa. If you had left it up to the black guys, there would be no gold mines. Just trust me, there'd be no gold mines. Because you don't have, you see, gold is the commodity you're selling. But gold isn't lying around on the ground. You have to yeah. dig bloody great shafts. You've got to have geologists to find it. You've got to know where it is. Then you've got to have engineers to dig the shafts and get it out. See, you organize the production of wealth. And you bring labor in to do that. You've always got to have labor. And everywhere in the world, ever since human beings have been around, well, ever since we got civilized, ever since we got together in groups, in cities, there have always been rich guys and poor guys. Now, I've come to the conclusion, okay, in my own mind, I think the bell-shaped curve exists. I'm just telling you, as a teacher, the bell-shaped curve exists. There are smart guys and there are dumb guys. And most human beings sit in the middle. That's what's there. Now, it, because that's become really unpopular. I'm not supposed to say that on the left anymore. I don't care. I'm telling you the bell-shaped curve exists. Okay? In every society, it's always there. And the smart guys are the guys that make the wealth. They organize this. They literally organize wealth production. And wherever this has happened, you've had to get labor to do that. Now, I understand labor's not paid a lot of bucks. I get it. Okay? My family were working class. I get the poverty thing. Believe me. I didn't come from a wealthy family. And I didn't like the rich guys either. <laughs> but you know what? 
And when I look back now, I go, you guys made the world. I have to admit, I admit that. When I look at businessmen, they're, often, they're people I don't like. As people, I don't like them. I don't have to like them. And I don't think they necessarily can do, they're not like smart academic types who can read books and be clever, right? Mm. It doesn't matter. They're still doing something pretty damn valuable. They're making wealth. And every society needs those guys, trust me. Have a look and see what happens if you don't have those guys. You're in big trouble if you don't have those guys. Now, is it right, therefore, to take the wealth away from those guys? Well, no, I don't think it is. I think it's a kind of theft. Hmm. I have a okay. question. Or oh, sorry, Giffen. Do yep. you want to follow up on that? Yeah, maybe we're going to have the same question. <laughs> but no, so I, under <laughs> I understand your, your, um, the framework, especially um, I feel like you were invoking like possibly like seizure of land perhaps and like physical property but i'm curious if that applies straight towards like you know a mild progressive tax structure you know and like just mild you know support of people who are in poverty with something like food stamps is that still too far in your no, mind no, look, that... I, I reckon look every society is going to have people that need help yeah because at the end of the at the at the at the, at the bottom end of the bell curve you've got people in trouble and they're never going to get it together and, and yeah, I think, you, I think any civilized society will do something to help those people. Yeah, of course. You don't want them just going to starve on the streets. That's not good. I'm not, I'm not advocating that at all. So yeah, I think there's some kind of a system where any decent civilized society helps dudes at the bottom. But what I don't like is this kind of wholesale transfer of wealth to when you identify that's a victim group and we think they should be raised up by transferring wealth from these guys who've been successful to those guys who've been unsuccessful it starts to become a problem um, and you start to mess things up. Um, I think you, you destroy the wealth making machinery. You're in real danger of doing that if you push it too far. And I, I fear we're heading in that direction. I see a lot of push in that direction. Um, and, and look, this, look again, it comes, it's all our context. Remember, you're in an American context, I come from a different context. So I, I, there's two countries, I live in Australia, but in my own heart, the places I care about are Zimbabwe and South Africa. Make no question, of course, that's where I grew up. I care about those places. And in both of those societies, you've had socialist governments come in and do this kind of, I'm going to transfer wealth stuff. And in both cases, it destroys the economy. There's no question to what I see happening. So wherever I look, whenever the left intervenes like that, whether it's from an extreme example like the Soviet Union to South Africa right now, which is a slightly less extreme example, it produces a mess. It damages the wealth production capacities. And in the end, I think everybody gets poorer. I really think that. And that's from my experience of looking at it and going, something goes wrong. Hmm. What, what do you think about the, um, I guess, the idea of not letting people fall too low um, in terms of, you know, you talked about the people at the, the bottom end of the bell curve. What do you think about the idea of not allowing them circumstantially to fall too low into poverty or too low into, um, into being taken advantage of, if not uh, be out of care for them, if even just to prevent, um, you know, discomfort um, and, and sort of unrestlessness to, okay. to keep... Yeah, I get it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, no, so, I mean, okay. Again, sorry, I'll, I'll use, I've got South African examples. So I'll give you a South African example 
mm-hmm. where I go, that's pretty smart, <clears throat> okay? And it was affirmative action, all right? But it was white affirmative action. Mm. Now, the example I'll give you is this. Okay, so remember I said you have the Boer War, and in the Boer War, English guys take over. One of the things that English South Africans did when they took over is they they did pretty much what they did in the southern states of America, what the Yankees did. They went in there and they were they were vicious buggers. Okay, they just took the farms. They they impoverished probably half the Afrikaner population. They turned them into poor whites, just like in the southern states you had poor whites because you impoverish these guys. You take away their wealth. You take away their wealth machinery. You take everything away. They become poor. So you had a large group of poor whites in South Africa who were Afrikaans speaking, looking very much like the poor whites in the southern states of America for pretty much the same reasons. The system had beaten them up. Okay, when, the, when these Afrikaner nationalists come to power, they look at this and they go, um, and because one of the interesting things is these poor white guys were moving into uh, squatter camps, like, you know, uh, slum camps. Mm. And the slum camps in South Africa were multiracial. So there were black guys, colored guys, Indian guys, and all these poor white guys all living together. They were intermarrying. Because that's what you do if you live together. <laughs> and those Afrikaners who formed the nationalist guys who invented apartheid, they look at this and go, dear God, we've got to stop this. We can't allow this to continue. Which is why they pull everybody apart. They were pulling those guys out of the slums, getting everybody apart. That's where, the seg- that's where they pull it and put them in separate places. Right? But they created an affirmative action thing. They said, we've now got half of our population who are poor whites. What do we do to these guys? They buggered. They're they broken because you break people's spirit. I get it. Okay? Much as you black guys have had their spirit broken. I get it. Yeah? Now, if you've broken somebody's spirit, they're not going to get back on the train. Mm. So this is what they said about these guys. They said, okay, these people are broken. We can never, ever raise them up. We can never fix them again. They're broken now. But we can fix their children. So what they did is, they, but what they did is, the affirmative action for white Afrikaners in South Africa was, not this kind of, we're going to elevate you, bang, get you into university. No, it was like, this is a slow process. So what they did is, they created sheltered employment kind of jobs for these people, mostly on the railways. They put all of these guys onto the railways. They were doing all this kind of low-grade jobs you didn't need to be educated for, but you paid them a kind of living wage, Mm. and you therefore could create stable home environments at the bottom, Uh, working-class kind of jobs. But at least you had food on the table, okay? <laughs> and you, you had a job. And if you have a job, you feel good about yourself. It's that kind of model. So you have a job. You've got a house. You bring up your kids. They put a lot of energy into making these people behave, saying, you know, stop this drinking and stop alcohol and be, be a reasonable person and bring up your children properly, yeah? And then they build colleges, initially technical colleges, not universities, and they put their kids into the technical colleges to give them an education, to give them a leg up, to get them into the system. And they did it over two generations. So you went from grandparents being poor and broken, working as laborers on the railways. See, people don't know, white guys were also poor in South Africa. They weren't all rich. They lived in those kind of conditions. They were working class guys. Then their children were upgraded by putting them into the technical colleges. And then Mm. the next generation went into the universities. And they literally built schools, colleges, and universities for these guys. The other interesting thing is 
They didn't put them in. All at the, when they started the model, all the schools and universities were controlled by English-speaking guys in South Africa, English-speaking white guys, the Anglo guys. They didn't put them into those places. They didn't, because they didn't want to lower the standards. They weren't going to lower the standards there by putting these guys in. They really understood the problem. They created separate parallel institutions. And they, over a period of two generations, increased the standards until eventually they were the same standard. So that's a smarter yeah. model. Hmm. Sounds like so, they're working separate but equal. Yeah, basically. <laughs> that's just what they always said, of course. But it was true. I mean, that's what they did. And they created these separate parallel institutions. Um, and then later on, they said they were trying to do the same thing for black guys. Because they said, they said, just as we Afrikaners were at a lower level, and we know we were at a lower level, we could not compete with those English guys. So if you do it, you're just going to wreck the system. They built parallel systems. Then later on, they built parallel systems for black guys and said, let's go through the same process again. Hmm. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. I, I'm just curious um, because you've been extremely generous with your time and we're coming up on almost an hour and a half here. But I'm but I'm curious how, because um, I know how you would be perceived in, a, in an American context. I can well I'm imagine. Curious, <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious how you're... Um, uh, perceived at your own university, um, coming from a more diverse background, uh, do do you find that people are more amenable to to ideas like this, or um, or is are these kind of off the table in Australia as well? No, they're off the table. Um, hmm. But you see, okay, the the advantage that I have is that because obviously, if you say these things, you're a racist, and I go hmm. like, dude, I'm not a racist. My entire life says to you, I'm not a racist. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's the point. So if I, if I had not been an ANC activist and hadn't put, hey, I got shot at, okay? These guys were shooting at me along with black guys. I was in a struggle with them. Mm. So don't come at, don't come, you know, these people come with this thing that you're a racist. They go, no, sorry, doesn't work like that. I was on the streets with these guys. They came for me as well. Okay? So I get yeah. it. And that gives me cover. But the truth is that if I hadn't done that, I would be in deep shit. I probably wouldn't have a job. Yeah. Mm. They would probably come not. Me. They'd come for me and go, you're a racist. But I have cover. I go like, sorry, look at what I did. So, yeah. uh, so in fact, this is what I say. This is the same as Australian. And if I'd say the same in America, I'd go, hey, guys, you're living in this nice, comfortable suburban lifestyle. And it's all been bloody cool for you. You've never had shit in your life. I've had shit in my life. I've been beaten up. I've had bad things happen to me. In fact, at one stage, I did lose my job in South Africa for being a communist. They came for me and said, you are dangerous. We're firing you. Okay, so I get it. I, I've been there. So you see what I'm saying? It's part of that gray area again. Yep. Okay, so I, I have the cover to be able to say that kind of thing. Although it's only up to a point. I mean, I'm still a bad guy, I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> I mean, at, at university, I, I, have, I have these conversations with people who kind of go, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to have a heart, heart attack here. <laughs> like, yeah. How can you say this stuff? And I go, well, like, let's talk it through. I mean, after talking to me, do you, do you still think I'm a racist at the end of this? Do you think I'm a bad no. guy? You see no, I mean? I, yeah. Well, I didn't to begin <laughs> with, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But th that's the point. So when I have those conversations, so if I have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, mm. then they kind of go, okay, I understand now. I get it. But obviously from a distance, it looks pretty bad. They go, oh, oh. okay. 
<laughs> um, by the way, I have African American family. Yeah. Yeah. Because in 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 back in Africa, some of my family um, intermarried with black people, and they produced mixed race people. Now in in Southern Africa, they call coloreds. So my mm. colored cousins, if they go to America, they're African Americans, and they go, "This looks better to me." <laughs> so they run away from Africa and they go to America. Mm. Hmm. Well, even that, I was just going to say, even that, um, the. Uh, the term uh, to refer to someone of African descent as colored in the U.S. is a oh. is a racist term. Yes. Yeah, but it just it's it's so weird. I mean, you've I in this conversation, if if there's one thing you've done to me very very well, it's exposed the fact that I I am coming to this conversation from an extremely narrow point of view, um, an extremely narrow one, and I think concepts like affirmative action. Um, if you want to look at them conceptually, you you want to get people with different backgrounds to talk Ooh. to, right? Because if I just spoke to, you know, people like Giffen and I just spoke to each other today instead of adding you to the conversation, we we wouldn't have been exposed to, I mean, any of what you said. It would have been extremely mm. narrow. Um, and I think that that's, you know, if people want to take but one lesson from this conversation, I think it's expand the scope of people you're talking to. Um, I can I can I just come in there if, if if you want to hear about yep. you wrote that thing of colored, it's mm. really useful to use that as an example. Yep. Okay, so first of all, if I explain to you where colored comes from, it's it's not what Americans think colored is. Mm. And then secondly, the interesting thing about South Africa now, colored people in South Africa are now being discriminated against because of affirmative action. So there are colored people in South Africa who now go, in the old South Africa, I wasn't white enough. And now I'm not black enough. <laughs> because the, the affirmative action principle in South Africa is for black South Africans. Coloreds get done in by this just like white guys. Okay? Huh. Because they're not proper blacks. <laughs> okay? Wow. Now that's a particularly South African problem. Now, sure. but, now yeah, but to understand how that happens, you have to understand where coloreds come from. So, so when white guys colonize Cape Town, the Cape area in the country, mm -hmm. okay? This is the Dutch colonial period. There are no black guys there. See, again, Americans don't know that. Black guys have been migrating down Africa from the north. Mm. The original inhabitants of Africa are a group of people called the Khoisan. Those are the indigenous people of Africa. Black guys are not the indigenous people of Southern Africa. They're invaders from outside. They are colonizers from outside. And when they colonize, they kill off the Khoisan. It's genocidal stuff. They just obliterate them. Now, when the white guys arrive in the Cape area of South Africa, there are no black guys there yet. Only Khoisan. Okay? Mm -hmm. But the Khoisan, white guys, the Dutch guys, consider the Khoisan so primitive that they can't use them as labor. They go, these guys are below the level where we can use them as labor. So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to import labor from outside. And they import slaves from Indonesia, hmm. like I told you. So they import, well, they import slaves, but they also buy slaves from the Portuguese. So they bring in some black guys from Africa, but mostly it's Indonesians and Indians with some black guys. These guys in South Africa as slaves intermarry. So you have Indonesians, Indians, black guys intermarrying. But they also intermarry with white guys. Hmm. 
So it's a kind of peculiar mix. But at the heart of it, colored culture is Asian. It's not African. Mm. Okay? And Africans don't see them as Africans. Wow. So they see them as outsiders as well. <laughs> so huh. when South Africans is colored, it means this group of people that grew out of our slavery thing, which was a mixture of East African black guys plus Indonesians plus Indians plus white guys. A lot of wow. the white guy intermarriage was from people jumping ship. Cape Town, all the trade between Europe and Africa used to go past Cape Town. And mm. in those days, people running, working on the ships, it was like slavery. They indentured you onto the slip ships. You didn't want to mm. be there. Yeah. So when the first port of call they got to was Cape Town, they jumped ship and ran like hell into the interior. <laughs> and when they, got there, when they got into the interior, they intermarried with runaway slaves, which is what produced mm. the colored population. So it's kind wow. of funny mix. So you see, they're not actually black Africans, which is why black Africans don't see them as Africans. Yeah. And so affiliation counts against them as well. Wow. So black guys, black guys have only been, there's a process of colonization happening right now where the ANC is importing black guys into Cape Town to turn it into a black city. Because when Mandela took over, there were no black guys in Cape Town, or virtually none. Mm. Now it's been turned into a black city through black colonization and affirmative action. Wow. I had, I had <laughs> honestly, I knew none of that. Yeah. So, it, and so that's part of the, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's kind of, yeah. things get blurred and yeah. They, they really do. Wait, so how, how, how was that term, uh, how did, how did we come to refer to African Americans as that, as colored in the U.S.? Do you know that history? Uh, well, I see if, if every so I think elsewhere. So in the colonial world, mm -hmm. um, colored meant that you were. I think colored meant anybody who wasn't a white colonial, basically. Oh, yeah, you okay. Used, I have used to use labor, basically. That's what happened. Yeah. Okay, so and same word just shifted. Right, but of course, if, then if we look in Australia, the, the fascinating thing about Australia is, yeah, the labor force were Irish. Again, Americans won't mm. know that. So the British, yeah, when they got you, they looked at the Aboriginals and they said, we can't use these guys as a labor force. Much the same as the Khoisan. They are too primitive. We can't use them. But we need a labor force. So English guys, as the colonial masters in Australia, had to create a workforce. So what mm. they did is they criminalized the Irish. <laughs> Basically, you yep. make, the, make the Irish criminals and you bring them to Australia. And right up until the 1970s in Australia, there was a, a huge cleavage in Australian society between English and Irish. The working class were Irish, much like in Northern Ireland. Hmm. So the working class was still from the old, the convicts were Irish, basically. And the guys that, that ran the joint were English. And it's only now that, that that's disappearing in Australia. But in many ways, although they weren't slaves, they pretty much were. The Irish guys brought to Australia were, were, they were treated pretty much like slaves were in America, but they were white guys. Wow. And so just to bring it all the way, you know, full circle in the conversation, you would, I'm assuming that you would bring up this history as the fact that, look, we can't just, you know, we can't look at Australian affirmative action with the same lens as we would look at American, because if we wanted to be you know, if we wanted to be apples to apples, then we would have to look at the Irish population in mm, Australia exactly. the same way. Exactly, yeah. 
Exactly, yes, exactly. So it yeah. just goes to show how historical context matters. And, and, everybody, and people have forgotten that now. I mean, nobody mm. talks about it. Even in Australia, nobody talks about it. It's amazing. If, if wow. you listen to Australian, if you listen to the Australian accent, and if you listen to Australian music, you will hear that it's Irish. Because the majority of the population were actually Irish. Hmm. It's not, it was not an English colonial settlement. So this is why Australia looks quite, culturally, Australia doesn't feel like America, and it doesn't feel like Canada, and it doesn't feel like New Zealand. And it's because hmm. of that Irish thing. It's basically an Irish colony. That's so fascinating. I have a question that I sure. just thought of. Now, you mentioned that the kind of inequality in like income and wealth has between like English and Irish in Australia has been bridged somewhat in the past however many years. Uh, mm. Now, do you know, or could you like give a brief, you know, so summary why, why perhaps of what legislation or how mm. how was that exactly bridged? Yeah, yeah. All right. So, in fact, there it didn't. It didn't happen by legislation at all. It happened as as, as a as a as the result of a of an internal fight within the Labour Party. So you had a two party system here. You had the Liberals who represented the rich guys, so like the like the Republicans and the Democrats. Okay, our mm -hmm. our Republicans here are called the Liberal Party, believe it or not, and <laughs> and and the Sorry. Democrats here are called are called the Labour Party. Okay. Mm, right. Now the Labour Party uh of course, it used to be, it, it used to be Catholic and it used to be Irish. Overwhelmingly, it was dominated by Catholic Irish people. Not entirely, but there you get it, okay? Whereas if you went to the Liberal Party, they were Anglicans and English. Okay. Now, what happened was, there was a huge fight in the 1950s within the Labour, with, within the, the, the Labour Party. Because the Labour Party moved very a large section of the, of the trade union movement in Australia, moved very close to the Soviet Union. There were a lot of guys who were out-and-out communists, okay? Whereas, of course, Catholic Irish, I mean, if you're Catholic Irish and you go to church, you're pretty damn conservative socially. <laughs> and you don't like communists. So a large chunk of the working class in Australia were culturally, they, they started, the, the, the Catholic Church came out and said, this communist stuff's bad. You mustn't be. You mustn't do this stuff with commies. They're bad people, and the conservatives within the Labour Party, who remained Catholic, eventually broke away. It was a guy. It was a guy actually called Santa Maria. He was this amazing guy. He was never a politician, but he was more powerful than any politician in Australia in the 1950s. And he was inside the Labour Party, and he broke the Labour Party in two by saying to these Catholic Irish guys. Get out of the Labour Party. They are commies now. And it smashed the Labour Party. For 20 years, they couldn't win an election. It devastated <laughs> them. And all these Labour... They formed a new party, in fact, called the Democrats, who were the Catholic Irish. And then what has happened over time is that those Catholic Irish guys, became, they were conservative, and they realized, well, actually, we belong in the other party. So they moved into the Liberal Party. They moved in with the conservatives. And they transformed the Conservative Party. So, in fact, there would have been a time in Australia up until the 70s when it would have been inconceivable to have a Catholic, a Catholic as a prime minister. It couldn't be done. Hmm. And the most conservative politician we had recently, you could have probably heard of him, Tony Abbott. Now, Tony Abbott was this conservative guy in the Liberal Party. Tony Abbott was a Catholic. <laughs> hmm. So, in fact, you know, in fact, if you look at the Liberal Party today, 
their heartland tends to be those guys who descended of those Catholic Irish guys who moved into the Liberal Party. And they, hmm. that's how they got into this. They got led into the system like that because they came through it politically. Wow. And then, that of course, you have migration. You've also got all that migration stuff, yeah? And as the migration stuff happens, you've brought in a lot of other people now who've confused the whole thing. So it's not just English and Irish anymore. It's got all these other things there. So the mixture's been changed. But underpinning it all still is that English-Irish thing. Wow. So there's never, there's never been an affirmative action thing for the Irish guys. But <laughs> they are now... <clears throat> If you now look at most small businessmen in Australia, you, probably the majority of them would tra tra trace their origins back to those Irish, Irish working-class convict guys. Hmm. The, the current prime minister, who's a conservative, his family came as convicts. Wow. Wow. That's interesting, actually. And that's, and that's you know, um, a perfect example where there's no uh, difference in race um, in that system. It was just, uh, yeah. you know... English versus Irish people, um, which, you know, I can't even tell the difference half the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it took me a while. When I got to Australia, I, I didn't know any of this stuff. And I, I, yeah. it took me a while to even realize there was a conflict. You're like, what is this? Yeah. And eventually I realized, oh, you guys, oh, I get it. There's this other legacy thing going on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think... Like you've said, I think Americans in particular just are so ignorant of, of the world's history. I mean, we don't even know our own history, let alone um, the history of other countries. So um, I think I think like you've pointed out, understanding that is is really a prerequisite to having complications like this on a historical level. Um, so, yeah, well, I mean, I, I want to understand yeah. your past. You don't understand your future, basically. And yeah. we seem to have eliminated history. People don't know their histories. Just sad. It is. It's awful. Um, and I think, I mean, in uh -huh. the U.S., we don't, I mean, I, I don't think most adult population or most of the adult population knows anything about, like I said, the U.S. history, let alone world history. Um, and yep. it, like you said, it's really a shame. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Eric, for, um, for educating us uh, for the past hour and a half. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Good. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you. Where can people find out um, more about your work and what you're doing? Oh, if you go to the University of Queensland website. Okay, excellent. I will link to that um, below. So, Eric, thank you so much um, for uh, for talking to us. And um, I'll have to thank Dane and uh, Clyde for referring us. Um, and people can write to you on um, LetterWiki. Is that correct? Yep, and email as well. Yep. Okay, excellent. All right. Um, thank you so much, Eric. Bye. All good. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and learned something from it. Um, you know, as, as always, you know, I, I say this at the end of every episode, but, um, you know, thank you for watching or listening if you're still doing so at this point. You can support my work at patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. You can also support this uh, podcast in non-monetary ways by sharing it on Twitter or on social media, uh, rating it on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find it and listen to it. You can like this video or subscribe um, via YouTube or RSS feed. You can discuss it on your own show and link back to this one, or uh, connect with me in general and um, recommend guests or topics I can cover, um, or just get in touch with me uh, for any for any you know reason you may have. 
You can do so at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And as always, um, thank you again for listening and for struggling to escape the cave. Until next time, thank you. Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org.